Welcome to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. I am the curator, Garrett Chaffin Kirai. I met the Patels when their youngest child, a boy, enrolled in my grade school class. All three Patel children had dark brown skin with black hair and dark eyes, compared with my white skin, brown hair, and blue eyes. They were also tall and athletic, and these gifts helped integrate them into the youth soccer leagues that had been established in Southern California in the 1970s. The San Diego Soccers were then a going concern near our suburb at the northern end of the county, and kids like us would scream Julie V for victory in honor of our hometown team and its most rhyme-worthy star. Because the Patels had first names that were hard for most local people to pronounce, they were the target of occasional racist jibes from white people used to insulting brown-skinned people given our proximity to Mexico. More often, though, the Patels were ridiculed for the way they spoke English, which made Apu on The Simpsons extremely familiar to me when he first appeared on that show in 1990. The Patel home was one of a half-dozen two-story houses on a newly built cul-de-sac halfway between my house and the elementary school where we all learned our math lessons. Because all of us were in the same Saturday soccer league, we saw each other often while marking time in the local park with our long socks and colorful uniforms before and after games. When the youngest Patel and I struck up a friendship, his older brother took to calling me Gatorade because that was then a new drink. My name is Garrett, and I was jiggly and fat, so I tried to take his nickname as something funny, although it stung. Yet, we all enjoyed playing soccer together at the top of their cul-de-sac, where our cries summoned the other local kids for pickup games, with an occasional family dog interrupting the fun. When I would ask to use the bathroom at the Patels, I passed through the kitchen where I often saw Mrs. Patel and Grandmother Patel preparing meals and speaking a language I'd never heard before. Their English was hard to understand, so I had to listen carefully when they asked me questions about how it was that my then-baby brother got his red hair. Toward the end of 1982, my dad picked me up from the Patels. What caught my attention was the vigorous conversation about an upcoming movie called Gandhi, which was about a man of the same name who was something of a cross between Jesus Christ and a question mark, since he was so very skinny and curled over with age, or so it seemed to me when I watched Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert on sneak previews. The problem of interpreting their review was that I didn't understand the distinction between Indians from India, like the Patels, and Indians from parts of North America, like Geronimo. I had no idea what terms like partition or colonialism meant, let alone what the phrase United Kingdom implied, and I certainly had no idea that there were multiple religious traditions beyond Christianity. When Gandhi opened at the Vineyard Twin in town, both Mr. and Mrs. Patel took Grandmother Patel to see the movie on separate occasions, and they also carted off the three children to see it too, each of whom complained about how long and slow the movie was, clocking in at over three hours in length. For the adult Patels, however, Gandhi was a wonderful experience, because they were seeing people like them being treated with solemnity and expert production techniques. Plus, the score by George Fenton and Ravi Shankar was something distinct from the brass and strings-driven Western-style orchestral music that often receives top marks from the public.
From early 1983, I can remember a follow-up conversation at the Patels when my dad again picked me up. He talked with them about the chances of Gandhi winning the Best Picture Academy Award considering it was nominated against Tootsie and The Verdict, and the adults enjoyed handicapping various big categories. Should it be Paul Newman's year? Who is Glenn Close? Gandhi was eventually honored as Best Picture, with Richard Pryor sharing hosting duties with Walter Matthau, Liza Minnelli, and Dudley Moore. I fell asleep before the final awards were given, and I learned about the previous evening's festivities through a report on NPR while being driven to school. For the rest of fourth and fifth grades, the Patels tracked into different classrooms and activities, but they remained a kindly family. After I transferred to a different school for the sixth grade, I realized that somewhere along the way the Patels had moved. The Gatorade's original lemon, lime, and orange flavors were now augmented by a red drink called Fruit Punch, and I had never been taken to see Gandhi, which was then available on home video in a double VHS pack that was always checked out from the library. Flash forward to 1999. I'm flying to London from New York City on a business trip for a job that makes me live the imposter syndrome, although there are perks too, like business class international travel. Wondering how I should spend my in-flight time, I scroll the AV guide for my individual seatback entertainment console, and I notice that Gandhi is among my options. I put on headphones, enjoy a complimentary glass of champagne, and settle into Richard Attenborough's biopic after reading the ad copy that exclaims, His triumph changed the world forever. Perhaps it's because Attenborough's masterpiece is so obviously, so inescapably in the tradition of old Hollywood screen classics that it seems out of touch with my then-current tastes attuned to the likes of The Sixth Sense and The Matrix. Perhaps it's because we already know the movie's ending since it is, after all, the story of an assassinated public figure. Perhaps it's because Gandhi beat out E.T., the extraterrestrial, for the Best Picture Oscar, and I've never forgiven the Academy for sliding my favorite alien and not giving Steven Spielberg a statue far earlier in his career than when he finally did in the 1990s. Regardless, Gandhi is an excellent film, I admit, although I challenge any modern person to be interested in watching it a second time, which is not to say that it lacks engaging moments, wonderful performances, and scenes with thematic resonance. What I mean is that Gandhi is a type of well-crafted biography that every society strives for because it epitomizes formal excellence while disregarding anything unpleasant about the central character. As in, did the historical Gandhi have blind spots concerning the suffering he was trying to end in this world, and are there people with legitimate criticism for how Gandhi lived? Of course, there are and were. But this is a biopic offering celebration instead of interrogation, an uplift instead of complexity, and that calculated emphasis on moral certainty is what makes it palatable to many thoughtful people. From his rise as an Indian-born, Western-educated lawyer through his installation as a worldwide symbol of peace, Gandhi's sweeping account of the life of Mohandas Karamchand Gandhi remains fixed on balancing social instruction with mass entertainment through Ben Kingsley's breakthrough performance, and his version of the historical man built around careful study of documentary evidence, including photographs and newsreel footage, is both dead-on accurate in terms of physical likeness, while also being at odds with conventional screen heroes. For example, 48 Hours, starring Nick Nolte and Eddie Murphy, was released the very same week of December 1982, and this action duo, spouting profanity and committing violence, is very much in keeping with the standard fare of popular movies. 
So, Kingsley's Gandhi becomes a symbol of humble courage in the face of obscene oppression, a civil rights myth and a rebuke of entertainment style, like 48 Hours, even as it also showcases grand set-piece spectacles, as in the assembly of massive human crowds on screen without the use of special effects. While there are no discrete moments or lines of dialogue or sequences that stick out to me from across the years, Gandhi does sometimes enter my thoughts, and those are quiet moments when I reflect on the Patels, that three-generation family of smiling, welcoming, Gandhi-anticipating people who first planted the idea of being more open to more ethnic, racial, and religious traditions than I had been exposed to as a nine-year-old boy. And in those same reflections, I also know that I didn't see many more Indian people on movie screens until I wandered into A Passage to India or first watched Mississippi Masala, or Baji on the Beach, and then saw My Beautiful Laundrette in revival around the time I met Dr. Neela Raskotra on the TV show ER. Then I enjoyed the company of Mindy Kaling, Cal Penn, Asif Manvi, and Hassan Minhaj before I finally learned how troublesome is the Apu accent from The Problem with Apu, a documentary about an Indian performer, Hari Kondabolu, who notes what a pain it is to see the only version of yourself on screen as a stereotypic character that is, nonetheless, a cause for celebration since there aren't many Indians from India describing the experience of diaspora in Western media. Growing up with my blue eyes and freckles, knowing how my immigrant story traces backward through several generations into Northern Europe, I've always seen a face like mine as large as a house on movie screens. That fact of identity helps me imagine how there are many people like the Patels, with their connections to soccer and Gatorade, saris and family dinner, waiting for their Gandhi to mark the day when their story entered the American mainstream, however briefly. Thank you for listening to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. My name is Garrett Chaffin Kirai. Boop boobity doo.